Hello, everyone. This is the Ed Talks Film Podcast. My name is Ed, and as always, we're here to talk film. Uh, today, I just wanted to hang out with you guys a little bit, talk to you guys about some stuff that I watched this week, and also talk to you guys about um, some stuff that's going to be coming on the channel. I'll be at the very end, though. Uh, we're here to talk movies first and foremost. And uh, so I've been watching some movies this week. Uh, let me see. When what when did the week start? It's Friday today. I talked to you guys about what I've seen since last Friday, which was the first. So basically the beginning of the month. All right. So seven days. Yeah, there's a week. I've been watching some movies. Uh, I wanted to talk to you guys about. Uh, and just, yeah, just hang out with you guys be able to, uh, you know, talk film and also get more podcast episodes out there. I'm trying to get more, um, I'm trying to get some people to come on, uh, so I can have someone to talk to on the podcast. That's, that was, that's when I was originally doing podcasts, um, way back, like a few years ago. Um, I used to have a co-host, so I'm like kind of more used to that format. (laughs) So, Doing a podcast on my own is kind of like awkward to me, so I'm still trying to get used to it. But I do want to provide you guys, you know, you know podcasts, because uh, you know, something that I got going on. So, but yeah, um, we'll start with what I watched on the first of uh, April, which was April Fool's Day. I watched uh, Oliver Stone's Wall Street for the very, very first time. Uh, that was one of two movies I watched that day. Man, dude, so Wall Street is a movie. So here's the thing about Oliver Stone, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of Oliver Stone. I like Born on the Fourth of July. I like JFK. I like um, Platoon. I even kind of like Snowden. I don't really like the third act of that movie, but I like Snowden um, a little bit. But Oliver Stone is a director that I'm not... You know, back in the, I mean, he wrote Scarface. That's a, that's a great movie. The thing about Oliver Stone is like, I'm still not necessarily fully acquainted with his work. The most recent Oliver Stone thing I saw from him was, uh, I watched his JFK documentary, which I thought was awesome. Um, anybody who knows me personally, uh, knows the man behind the mask, um, knows that like, I'm kind of deep on, I get deep on some stuff. Uh, JFK being one of them. Uh, JFK is just, uh, it's just fascinating. But anyway, um, I'm actually, I'm I'm probably going to purchase the four hour version of that documentary so I can watch it. Uh, But no, but I've never seen Wall Street. And when I watched it, I was really like, this movie was the precursor to the Wolf of Wall Street and to the Big Short and to a lot of those types of movies. Wall Street was definitely like the OG of those movies. And it's just, in, it's also very interesting just seeing Charlie Sheen young and not like old and with like HIV or whatever <laughs> and not like possibly uh, molested a child. Who knows? Um, I don't know that for sure. I, I'm just, I'm just saying things. I don't know anything. I, I don't feel uh, like suicidal at all. So if, uh, if I, if I am found dead, uh, because I insulted Charlie Sheen, uh, it's because I insulted Charlie Sheen, not because I killed myself. Um, (laughs) 
dark humor for the first like five minutes of this freaking podcast or three minutes. We're not even five minutes in. Wow. Um, anyway, so I did watch Wall Street and I actually thought it was pretty cool. Um, I, I, the thing about Oliver Stone is he's definitely like, he's not a subtle guy. You know what I mean? So when watching the movie, it feels kind of real for the most part, but these characters do still feel a little bit larger than life and not really like that grounded. Like, especially, um, Michael Douglas's character, man, he feels like straight out of a freaking, he almost feels like a Scooby-Doo villain sometimes. (laughs) Um, Gordon Gecko. There were some times where I was like, wow, like, wow. (laughs) Um, like his whole greed is good speech. I was like, but then nowadays, man, like some of the people that you see on the news and that you see like on TV and on the government and running companies, now you're kind of like, actually, you know what? Gordon Gecko is kind of like actually not that cartoony. <laughs> that's like, that's kind of the conclusion that I started coming to though. Like after the fact, I was like, like in a movie, you're like, what? But then in real life, you're like, wow, that's like a legit dude. <laughs> There's a legit guy out there somewhere who like actually thinks he's Gordon. There's probably a couple who think they're actually Gordon Gecko. But one thing I liked about this movie, I think the thing I like the most about this movie, and it's something I I particularly like about the 80s movies and late 70s movies and even some early 90s movies that like um, have to that like were I'd say more the adult films and action films like drama movies and action movies is I love the way they capture like the sun, like the orange early morning that visual, like with the sun and the, and like the the early morning orange uh, sun rays in New York, that's something that like it's weird because I feel like you never see that nowadays in like a similar way. Like sometimes you see it. Like I know they did it in Star Wars, <sighs> or like or like you think about like the beginning of um of um Die Hard Three, right? With the hot town somewhere in the city. Sometimes I'm just like, wow. I'm like, you never really see anybody capture light like that um, anymore, which is fascinating to me that because I would think that that like that would really be like something that that um, that that's something I'm just surprised that like that's still not like like it like everybody's gotten to the more like, you know, realistic lighting. You know what I mean? Like like cameras like like there's I feel like there's a lot weirdly enough with more technology and better lenses and whatever the image has been reduced a little bit down to more like minimal right there's less like character it feels like um to like colors and images nowadays in films a lot of films sort of like seem to want to like really recreate um they want to recreate like the environment as real as possible. Right. And not necessarily like stylize it in a way. So that's just something that stood out to me when I was watching that movie. It's just like, just whenever you go back to those older movies and you're like, wow, they really like knew how to capture light and make it like look really, really sick. If I'm being honest. Um, and then on the same day I watched collateral by Michael Mann, <laughs> Um, which is a movie I actually haven't seen in a couple years, I think. 
So when I was actually, actually, I, I think I actually might've seen it in 2021. No, no, I'm thinking about it. I think I actually did watch it like last year, but I recently got it on 4k Blu-ray. So I wanted to watch it. I just wanted to see it in 4k, see what it was like, try out my 4k TV, whatever. Collateral is not the best movie to try out your 4k TV too. Uh, but I, 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 I was like, I, uh, I'll watch it. <laughs> um, I like Michael Mann, but no, man, I, the coolest thing about this movie is still Tom Cruise. I've, I I will maintain that forever. Tom Cruise is the coolest thing about that movie. Um, I love seeing him like just freaking murderously dispatch people. Uh, oh, like when those guys try to rob Jamie Foxx after he um, handcuffs him to the freaking car and then they try to rob him and then freaking Tom Cruise comes down and he goes, whoa. I think he says like homie to one of the guys and you're like, this is totally like a fish out of water, like hitman dude, who's just kind of like, you you almost can't tell if he's being serious or he's effing around with these people. And I really like that. Somebody else who was in this movie that I completely forgot was in this movie was Jada Pinkett Smith. Uh, I'm surprised that she didn't smack Jamie Foxx. Although knowing Jamie Foxx, she, she might've got a slap back. Um, that was a terrible joke. But um no, it was so fascinating actually just to like see her in this movie and be like, whoa, that's that's freaking Jada Pinkett Smith like back in the day. Uh, still don't find her attractive, but yeah, her and Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise, they're really, really good. I can see why I think Jamie Foxx got nominated for best actor in a supporting role in this movie. I could be wrong about that. That 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 could have just completely flown out of my freaking butt and like I wouldn't even know. Um but yeah, man, it also made me want to just rewatch some Michael Mann movies. Like, here's the thing, though, like post digital Michael Mann. It's like, what do you watch? You know what I mean? It's like you watch Collateral. Uh, maybe you watch Public Enemies. That's a movie I actually really haven't seen. I've only seen once and I only like kind of watched it. So I kind of like want to check out Public Enemies. I saw a little bit of it and I was like, whoa, this movie looks so weird. Um there's that one he did with Chris Evans, the hacker movie, uh, Black Hat. I didn't think that movie was too bad. <laughs> I actually kind of liked uh, Chris, uh, Chris, Chris. Did I say Chris Pratt? What's his name? Not Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Um, no, Chris Hemsworth running around with the Chinese freaking doing hacking crap. That was kind of cool. I'm not gonna lie. I the sound I remember watching that movie and the sound design blew me away. I like I was like completely in awe of the sound design in that movie. It was actually like pretty stunning. That's always been a thing with Michael Mann movies, though. He he has incredible sounds. Um, you know, there's Ali, which uh, you know, which is pretty good. It's pretty good. I, I never really enjoyed the part where he goes to Africa though. That I, I totally like fall out of like the movie loses me there. Um, obviously the best Michael Mann movies are like Heat and Thief. Uh, dude, what else did Michael Mann do? Hold up, let me look that up. What else is what? What's like? I'm trying to. I'm having trouble remembering Michael Mann movies. Oh, oh, The Insider, dude. That's a banger movie. I love The Insider. Okay, so this is The Insider. That's like a post Heat Michael Mann movie. Dude, in Miami Vice. Okay, I like Miami Vice. I like the director's cut of Miami Vice. That's a freaking... Dude, you know what convinced me to watch the director's cut of Miami Vice again? The freaking Rewatchables podcast. Whenever 
<laughs> Chris Ryan and Sean Fennessy and Bill Simmons get together and they talk about Michael Mann. That, that those podcasts feel like an event. It's like we're talking about Michael Mann today. Haven't they done Heat like three or four times on that freaking podcast? <laughs> oh my god, it's so funny. Oh my god. Oh, one thing I noticed when I watched Collateral, right? So I I did um I do freelance at video editing sometimes, and um, I used to make movies for this. I movies. I used to make little videos for this um this like uh shoot what what what, what would you call it? like an IT guy, this guy at an IT company. And, uh, he is, he, when I watch, uh, Javier Bardem, um, in, uh, in freaking, uh, in, in collateral, <laughs> your Hermes Fasanabla ass. Um, when I see, uh, um, Javier Bardem in collateral, I'm just like, yo, that's freaking, that's the guy I used to work for. Exactly the same temperament, same speech pattern, very, very similar accent. Um, the dude I was working for was Dominican. Um, and I was just like, whoa, <laughs> this is, this guy is so similar to the guy that I've like met, um, and that I worked for. And it, that was crazy to me. That was just so crazy to me, dude. Um, watching that movie. But yeah, I've seen, I've seen collateral a lot. I love collateral. I love the philosophical nature of collateral too. Uh, the idea of like, you know, wasting, like, are you wasting your time? You should be going out following your dreams or whatever. Like, what are you doing? Life could end in a moment type of deal. You know, whatever happens, we got to roll Darwin crap happens, eaching, whatever, man, we got to roll. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you know, it's so it's so interesting watching that movie, and I love I love when um, when uh, when um, Jamie Fox has to pretend to be Tom Cruise's character, and he just like kind of flips the switch on him real quick, and I love that scene where he goes tell you tell your tell your man to put his gun his gun down, and he goes what he goes I said tell your man to put his gun down before I beat his uh, something ass to death with it, and you're just like yo. This is the coldest dude in the whole movie. The coldest dude in the whole movie right now just became Jamie Foxx. <laughs> it's so cool. Oh, man. So then we go to the second. I only watched one movie uh, on the second, and that was We Need to Talk About Kevin, Lynn Ramsey movie. Um, I've only ever seen one Lynn Ramsey movie, and that was um, uh, You Were Never Really Here with Joaquin Phoenix, which... I really, really enjoyed the first time I watched that. I loved it. It was dark. It was like Taxi Driver. I like Johnny Greenwood's score. Um, I love the I love the kind of super violent but very like observational action sequences too, and a little bit avant garde. Um, but you know, so what? Here's what got me to watch. We need to talk about Kevin. I was reading um, an Ask Reddit. I know. I was reading. <laughs> I was reading an ask Reddit post where they were like, what was the most disturbing thing you ever saw on Reddit? And somebody talked about how somebody, this guy made a, wrote a Reddit post about this, about it, about his son and how his son was a freaking crazy psychopath maniac. And like, it just got more and more violent as time went on and he was freaking nuts and all this jazz. And I was like, Whoa. And, uh, in the, in the, in the post, he actually goes, I recently watched, we need to talk about Kevin. And I swear to God, the filmmaker had a freaking camera in my house. Cause it was like, I was reliving it. 
And reading that story, like I have a kind of a fascination with like these freaking like morbid, like little bit morbid stories. So I, so I went to, so I was like, okay, I got to watch this movie now that I freaking read that Reddit post. Cause that Reddit post was freaking nuts. So I go to watch it uh, and, and that movie was more disturbing than I actually thought it was going to be, which is weird. Cause I thought I was like kind of prepared for like the disturbing nature of the movie, but Ezra Miller's performance is like another level of disturbing. Um, I, I actually, I, I was like kind of scared <laughs> looking at him and, um, the whole relationship between um, John C. Riley and uh, Tilda Swinton's characters. I, I feel like it came to a point in the movie where I actually just started feeling very depressed because Tilda Swinton's character was getting such a short end of the stick like the entire time. I just felt like, my God, this poor woman is never going to catch a break. Her freaking son's a maniac. And then her father freaking uh the father of the freaking son like freaking left and doesn't believe her and all this other jazz and then over time he just gets more and more violent it was weird is that i was like okay what you get little snippets of the atrocity that you're pretty sure if you if you go into the movie kind of knowing what the like premise of the movie is you kind of go in and then and then when things are coming up you're like okay i i understand what is going to happen at some point, but you don't like necessarily understand the, um, the mechanism by which it occurs, the atrocity by which, um, uh, the mechanism of the atrocity that Kevin eventually commits in the movie. But then when you start putting the pieces together and you go, Oh my God, I can't believe they're actually going to do this. And they do. And, and, and it's just disturbing. And, and that, that one of the moments that really haunts me in that movie is when she walks out, when she gets home, and she walks out into the uh, into the field, into the backyard, and you see the husband and the daughter are dead, and they have arrows in them, and the sprinklers are on. That blew my freaking mind, dude. And... You know, and the, the whole movie, right? When you're watching the movie, they kind of lead you on. You're like, oh, so the so the um, so the husband's probably gonna leave because they have tension in their marriage because this freaking kid. No, dude, and then like the poor girl has freaking loses the poor daughter loses her eye because she poured Drano in it, and he killed her hamster, and he put freaking Drano in the. Oh my god, dude, that movie was nuts. Um, beautifully shot movie though. Um, Lynn Ramsey, a master master filmmaker I, I i she needs to be working more honestly i need to you know rat catcher is in the um criterion collection now and i i, I want to get my hands on that kind of like check it out see what it's all about so then next on the third well i've watched the movie every day this year this uh month so far on the third i watched django and django sergio Corbucci unchained which is a documentary about Sergio Corbucci's Westerns. It came out in 2021. It's actually currently on Netflix in the United States if you want to go see this. Um, and it's most of the documentary is Tarantino talking about Sergio Corbucci, but also some Corbucci collaborators um, talking about Sergio Corbucci's films and Westerns. And it's got a lot of archival footage and um, stuff like that. And dude, it's just a sick documentary. It just is. It's just a sick documentary about the second best spaghetti Western director. Uh, 
and you get to see like you know his contrast to Leone, how Leone was making these more epic movies, and then Corbucci was making these more down and dirty, intimate, violent, uh, ultra violent Western movies that um, obviously went on to um, uh, inspire Quentin Tarantino. Um, which is really fascinating because you do obviously get to hear the words of Quentin Tarantino himself describe the impact that Corbucci's films had on him, had on his movies, and him get to just talk about the things that he loves about Corbucci's westerns. And it's a short documentary. It's only like 77 minutes, but it was really, really fun to just watch. It, it's something I actually might even watch again because it's a nice short watch, but it's just nice just to get get this little slice of film history in there. You know what I mean? And then immediately after that, I watched Django Unchained, um, which is one of my favorite Tarantino movies. Um, it's like in the top three. Django Unchained is such an um, a, amazing film, and I just feel like I had to watch it after I watched it. I almost watched The Hateful Eight, but I was like, let me watch Django Unchained. And God, dude, I I can't tell you how many moments of freaking Django Unchained where it's, it just feels like it, it just feels like it feels like a victory lap over and over and over again, man. Just freaking banger scene after banger scene after banger scene, dude. The freaking introduction to that movie is great with Schultz coming across the freaking chain gang uh, of slaves being escorted by those freaking by the Speck brothers. Oh, my God, dude. I freaking love that. And I love Schultz. God, it's such a it's so sad when he dies at the end of the movie. Um, <laughs> um, um, but he, I just love his sass. I love Jamie Foxx's Django is so brilliant. I don't know if he was nominated for best uh, actor that year, but he really should have been because his performances as Django was my God. One, one of the great performances of the last decade, I gotta say. Um, but yeah, man, dude, I, I could watch Django Unchained all the time. I love, I, I always, I'm able to like quote some of the movie uh, sometimes I remember the first time I watched Django Unchained too. I watched it. Somebody had uploaded all of it on YouTube in the olden days, you know, in like 2012. So I went home and I remember I went on my, uh, I had like an iPod touch and I watched Django and Unch- all of Django Unchained on YouTube. And it was my favorite thing ever, dude. It was my favorite thing ever. I couldn't believe how much I loved the movie. I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing since freaking sliced bread. And I think the only Tarantino movie I'd seen, I think I'd seen Inglorious Bastards and I think I'd seen Pulp Fiction. But my God, dude, freaking Django Unchained blew me away, dude. I, I, I was, I fell in love with the whole story. I didn't even mind how long it was. I think I watched it like every day for a week. While it was on YouTube, like I was like, it's who knows when YouTube is going to catch it. So I just kept watching it. Oh, dude, those were the days, man, when I was in high school. Anyway, um, God, I freaking loved watching Django Unchained, dude. Uh, I love and I love Schultz like the whole time. Uh, I love when he tells uh, Django the story of Brumhilda von Shaft. Um, I love... Um, I love the final exchange between him and Calvin Candy. Um, when, uh, you know, you want me to shake your hand. And then he's like, I do insist. Well, then I must insist in the opposite direction. And then they're just going back and forth. And he, and then he tells freaking if he doesn't shake his hand, he's going to freaking shoot Broomhilda in the freaking stomach or whatever with the shotgun. 
Terminator 2 guy is going to do that. <sighs> Dude. Oh, and I love when uh, when they finally get that, when Ca- Candy realizes, kind of feels sour that he's kind of lost a little bit, right? And freaking uh, what sets that whole thing in motion is when... Um, is when um, Christoph Waltz, when 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 King Schultz has when he says, uh, uh, normally in this sort of circumstance, I would say a Vidazen, which means till I see you again. But because I never wish to see you again, to you, sir, I say goodbye. <laughs> I love that, dude. I freaking love that, man. So. God, man, I, I eat that movie up every time I watch that movie. I eat that freaking movie up. Django, you black son of a gun. The deer silent hillbilly, and he shoots him in the nuts. Oh, my God. Ugh. Man, I can't wait till whatever Tarantino's next movie is going to be. His last movie, unfortunately. It's it's okay, though, because we'll still get, like, books from him. I mean, that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book was incredible. So I will read whatever he brings to the table. So then the next day, on the 4th, I watched uh, The Death of Stalin, dude. I've, I saw The Death of Stalin once um, a couple years ago. And then uh, I recently, it was on sale on iTunes for like five bucks. So I was like, I might as well get this movie. Um, and I bought it. Oh my God, dude. The Death of Stalin is such a freaking... Dude, I, A, it's very funny. But I, I just love the aesthetic of the movie. It's weird because it is a comedy. It is a comedy movie. But it, there are moments that really feel like they are straight out of like one of the most prestige um, uh, historical political epics. And I think that that's one of the things I like, I think, the most about this movie is that while there is a lot of these comedic elements to it and there's a lot of these grown men acting like children – in the movie in, in like this sort of vast power grab for, for, for the Soviet union after Stalin's death. Um, you know, there is like, there is a seriousness to it. There is a somberness to it. And, and there is like a, a, there is a feeling like, wow, like this, like these decisions being made do have an impact on history. And I, and I really like that. Um, and you know, uh, Steve Buscemi, right? Steve Buscemi's in the movie. He's great. Um, oh, the guy who plays uh, uh, freaking Comrade Beria, dude. That guy, let me see. What's his name? He's a good actor, too. Uh, Simon Russell Beale. He plays Laverenti Beria. Dude, he's so freaking good, man. Oh, yeah, and Steve Buscemi plays Nikita Khrushchev. Yeah, he was awesome. Jason Isaacs. When Jason Isaacs shows up in the movie as Field Marshal Zukov, dude. He freaking was one of the, (laughs) he's one of the funniest uh, people in that whole movie because he's such a like tough guy, straight man compared to all these like kind of, you know, obvious uh, out of shape political bureaucratic people. So when he comes in, it's hilarious. Rupert Rupert Friend as Vasily Stalin was interesting. Um, One person who who really, really does good is, um, Andrea Riseborough. She plays Svetlana Stalin. Um, oh my God. And Jeffrey Tambor as Gregory, uh, Malenkov. He was so funny because he's just kind of like a monkey in a suit, the whole freaking. <laughs> he's like a monkey in a suit, the whole freaking um, uh, um, 
movie and like when he eventually gets control of the Soviet Union uh, in the wake of Stalin's death is just hilarious. <sighs> Sorry about that. It's just hilarious, just like just some of the things, like just how seriously he takes himself, but he's also like just super vain or whatever. Um, I love the scene where um, they have the like, uh, everyone gets to see Stalin's body for three days um, after he's dead. And um, it's funny because Steve Buscemi is like, because they're all like kind of like standing um, side by side each other but like they're like all kind of like yelling insults at each other from across the way and like people are having to like basically telephone over the freaking uh what 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 they're saying like uh the um Beria and um Nikita Khrushchev because they're a couple people apart from each other and then um uh Buscemi uh you know Khrushchev he goes he goes let's switch spaces uh with uh with Gregory and he goes no and he goes, come on, let's switch bases with me. He goes, no. And then he goes, we can make it look like part of the ceremony. And then Chevy takes a step forward and then takes a step in front of him. And Jeffrey Tambor goes, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that killed me. That killed me so much. That's so funny. Oh, my God, I love that movie so much. So that was just a fun, nice rewatch. Um, that's a movie I'm definitely going to show some of my friends in the future. Uh, especially the ones that I know that love history. That's that's a that's a perfect movie for for people who love history. Um, so then the next day on the fifth, I watched the Card Counter. Uh, uh, Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, which here's a good reminder: if you uh, didn't know, I did do a video essay about Paul Schrader uh, that you can check out on my YouTube channel. Ed talks. You can check out on the YouTube channel. Ed talks film Redux. Uh, there's a link obviously in the show notes. Uh, so go check that out. Or you could just go on YouTube and type in Ed Talks Film Redux. Ed Talks Film is all one word. E-D-T-A-L-K-S-F-I-L-M. And then just Redux and you'll find it. Um, I think it even comes up if you just type in Ed Talks Film. So, but yeah, man. Oh, I really, really like The Card Counter. I don't think it's my favorite Schrader movie. It's definitely not my favorite Schrader movie, even though it does have some of my favorite scenes in a Schrader movie. Um, specifically, the um, the Abu Ghraib torture scene um, with Willem Dafoe and, and everybody with the hard rock music. Um, the Nightmare, Oscar Isaac's Nightmare. Uh, it's a great movie. You should watch it. Um, I think First Reformed is still like miles above the card counter, even though the card counter is pretty good. My biggest issue with the card counter, though, is I feel like there's two parts in that movie. Here's where I think the movie falls falters, where it really could have. It could have got a lot more points, I think, from people had it not faltered in this way. And that was the um, that was the casting of Tiffany Haddish and uh, Tyler Tyler Sheridan. They are, they are, it, it's more apparent every time I watch the movie just how miscast they are, um, which is really sad. Apparently Shia LaBeouf, I think, was supposed to be Ty- Tyler Sheridan's character, which I think would have been much more better for the movie because, you know, Shia LaBeouf really does have that, like, intensity about him in the roles that he does um, sometimes that, like, you can really feel, whereas Tyler Sheridan does not. And he actually just kind of comes off as a whiny brat for a lot of the movie, which is it's which is 
pretty unfortunate, I gotta say. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Tiffany Haddish really doesn't feel like she works in this movie. She feels very, very awkward. The person who really is doing amazing in the movie, though, is uh, um, Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac is William Tell. He's amazing. Um, but the characters, the supporting characters really bring down the, the that's my biggest, uh, what I think is the movie's biggest sin is that I think those supporting characters sort of bring down the movie as a whole. And also, I feel like there should have been a lot more scenes with Willem Dafoe. At least one more long scene with him. Um, I feel like I feel like totally missing that um, kind of hurts that movie a bit. Okay, so then the next day, on the 6th, I watched two movies. I watched S. Craig Zoller's Dragged Across Concrete, which is... One of my favorite crime movies, man. Um, I love that movie. And I know it's a pretty controversial movie, but God, there's just so many things I love about it, man. I love Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn playing off of each other. It's what it's it's so cool. It's so freaking cool, man. I love them together. I love the humor. I feel like their car talk is is just about as good as True Detective's car talk. And I know that's kind of sacrilege because True Detective is like the greatest thing ever. But dude, I, I I love them just as much as as Cole and Marty. I love Vince Vaughn and and um and and uh, Mel Gibson in Dragged Across Concrete just as much. Um, I like how rough around the edges the movie feels. Like the movie feels like it's not not like the production of the movie feels rough around the edges. The production of the movie actually feels really really well done and professional and stuff like that. But the uh the narrative right it really feel i you can tell that s craig zoller is a i'm sorry i'm like shifting <laughs> that s craig zoller really is like a big fan of the um of the 70s films um and it really really comes through in this movie um and how he handles it you know getting the ojs to do music for the movie is so freaking cool um, I love Shotgun Safari and the rich man has a gilded life. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I freaking love that song, dude. Um, yeah, dude. And I love the brutal, the violence is brutal, but it's brief. And I really, really enjoy just how he handles it. And one thing I was talking about, right? So I watched this movie with uh, my girlfriend and one thing I really, really enjoyed um, about it is that, you know, as Craig Zoller was a novelist prior to becoming a filmmaker. And, um, when he was making, um, drag trust concrete when, he, so the movie's long, right? It's like two, it's almost two hours and 45 minutes. It's like two hours and 38 minutes or something like that. You can, you can see like the novelly part of him in it, like in the, in the sense that like, there are side characters in the movie that only may have like one or two scenes and they really make use of them and really like introduce you um, to that character in like a very economical way. You get a whole scene and you're like, oh, where the heck is this going? And then it like wraps back around into the movie, almost like a mini like Magnolia tangent. And it's just so interesting. I think like the the main one that's really, really good is the one with Jennifer Carpenter. 
in the movie. I, I thoroughly enjoy her story about like this mother who's kind of like, she's got like this depression and anxiety surrounding the fact that she's not with her child every day and she has to go back to work in order to be able to support her kid. And you get this moment between her and her husband and she goes back to the house and he's like telling her like, you know, you have to go to work. I'm not going to let you in. Um, and you not go to work and everything like that. And it's just so, it's fascinating and it's heartbreaking because you feel for her, but you're also like, you you really feel for her in that, in that moment. You're like, oh, this poor woman is, is she's, she's having like, a, she's on the verge of a psychotic break because of having this kid. And then later in the movie, she freaking uh, gets her hands, she dies in, a, in the bank robbery because she went to work and you're just like, what the hell is this? And the movies, the movie has a very, um, you know, you know, everybody talks about like movies where like, oh, the, the hero is morally gray or something like that, which really just means that the hero sometimes does jacked up stuff, but they're still the hero. But you very rarely get movies where there's true moral grays in the characters. I think The Hateful Eight is one of them, which I think is part of the reason why that movie is so controversial for a lot of people. But this is a movie really of a lot of just bad guys and worse guys. You know what I mean? And guys that are like doing something selfishly, right? Um, There's one character played by Tori Kittles who isn't, but he's not the main character of the movie. Um, he definitely has like, he has quite a bit of the movie. He's got, he's got around, I want to say 30 to 40% of the movie is him. Maybe even less probably. And you buy into him, but he's not the main character. The two main characters are these two crooked cops played by Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson who are not heroes in the slightest. They are really just taking advantage. They're, they're there to rip off a deal. That's what they're there to do. They're there to rip off another gold heist. And in a way, this movie is kind of like Treasure of the Sierra Madre, um, but like a 70s crime flick version of Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which I really, really love, man. Oh, man, Drive Across Concrete. I could, it's such a great movie, but I love its true moral great characters. I love its score. I love its cinematography as, oh my God, especially in the last set piece. It almost feels like a comic book. Honestly, it almost feels like a really dope, like comic book setting Gotham. It towards the in the last sort of act of the freaking um, movie, man. It's so so freaking cool, man. Beautiful images on screen. And then later that night, I um, a friend uh, picked me up from my house, and we went to go see. Um, uh, they're doing like Studio Ghibli Fest twenty twenty two right now, and Princess Mononoke. Uh, was out um, at my theater. So we went to go see Princess Mononoke. And this was like the first time I've actually really seen Princess Mononoke. Um, Dude, man, I've only seen a couple Studio Ghibli movies in my life. I've seen Castle in the Sky. I've seen Kiki's Delivery Service, and that's about it. And then, yeah, Princess Mononoke, man. I just got to see it, and I got to see it in the theaters. It was an English dub, which is like, you know, Sub over dub, but you know, I watched the English dub. It's actually pretty good though. The dub actually is not bad at all. Um, apparently Neil Gaiman handled the dub. Um, dude, it's so it was so just epic. It felt like um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that Takashi Mike Samurai movie Thirteen Assassins. 
Um, Princess Mononoke kind of felt like 13 assassins, uh, in a, in a cool way. Um, just because of the samurai story and the attacking the city and, and the violence. That's another thing. I like the violence in this movie. I like, I like that they didn't kind of hold back, even though it's an animated movie. They kind of didn't hold back. You know, people's heads are coming off. People's arms are coming off. There's freaking blood. These are horrifically grotesque images. Um, and it just feels epic, man. It feels like just a really, really epic freaking samurai movie with like a supernatural element to it. Uh, I love Princess Mononoke herself. She's really cool. And I love, oh my God, I like when she kind of goes to attack and she like freaking runs like at super speed. I was like, holy crap, she's pretty awesome. So yeah, dude, Princess Mononoke, that was a great freaking movie. What did I give that on Letterboxd? I gave it like four stars. I, I really, really thoroughly enjoyed that freaking movie, man. I love the whole story with the wolves too. And the wo- the wolves and the freaking the boars. Oh my god! And then the, and then the, and then the forest spirit. That movie really it is emotional, man. The, the movie goes back and forth between like epic, amazing action scenes, and then these really, really heartfelt, beautiful, beautiful, mystical, ethereal sequences. Um, with with some of this, like the more supernatural elements in the movie, it's just so awesome. And then, uh, so the seventh. This is yesterday. I went to, um, I didn't went anywhere. I sat, I sat at home. I don't know why I opened the sentence with, I went, I saw, uh, I rewatched Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Now, anybody who doesn't know me, uh, on this podcast, if you do know me, you know that Anthony Bourdain means a lot to me, like a lot to me. Parts unknown, and no reservations. Like I grew up watching the Travel Channel, right? My mom loved the Travel Channel, so I was introduced to Anthony Bourdain uh, pretty young through No Reservations. But um, Parts Unknown, man, oh my god, that's that show is something that really inspired me to like take up uh, like kind of short form documentary. Um, like on my old channel, I used to do like kind of short form documentary, like vloggy type stuff. And that, that, that show was a big influence on me. And Anthony is a big influence on me, not only just as like from a filmmaking standpoint, when I do get to like make films and travel and stuff like that, but, um, but just from a writer, like an essayist writing standpoint, Anthony is such a big influence on me. And, and, you know, we share some similarities. Like we both are huge fans of apocalypse now, uh, fascination with maps, (laughs) um, all that type of jazz, uh, just a, a fascination with culture, a fascination with the effects of war, right? A lot of that stuff comes through in his show, and those are a lot of things that drew me to his show. Um, and man, dude, it, it's just, I, I loved his show. I loved everything that he would be, and I, I, I loved his little cameo. And um, here's world-famous chef Anthony Bourdain to explain, and he explains like what a tranche is, right? Oh, my God, so brilliant. And uh, I saw this documentary back when it actually did release in theaters last April, I think it was. So it's been about a year, actually, since I watched it the first time. Um, I think it was like April or May, whenever Pig came out, because I saw Pig and Roadrunner on the same day. Um, yeah, dude, I it, it, every time I, I felt this the first time, but I, when I watched the documentary the first time, I kind of just like sat in my seat. 
for a little bit because I, I, I felt like just very heavy and I was there with my girlfriend and uh, she was, she was watching. She kind of like was over to me. She goes over to me and she was like, are you okay? <laughs> um, I think this documentary was snubbed for a best documentary nomination. I don't understand how Morgan Neville makes this documentary and the Mr. Rogers documentary. Won't you be my neighbor? And like gets no nominations like either year. Like what the heck is that? Um, no, but I love, I love his portrait of Anthony because it's not just like a loving, it's a loving portrait of who this man is told through, you know, his friends and, um, but the thing about it is it's not, it doesn't shy away from this very, very complicated nature of who this guy is. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of uneasy stuff there. There's a lot of stuff there that um, isn't pretty. And there's a lot of stuff there that it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And I think that's kind of like the best thing a documentary can do when there's a documentary about a person, right? Because a lot of documentaries about a person are like, you know, the person was amazing. They were just so amazing. And they kind of messed up here a little bit. But who cares about that? They were amazing. And I think, you know, that's something that documentaries don't really dwell on too much when they make these documentaries about people. They really do kind of like go, yeah, but it was all for a cause. And Anthony's death sort of came about in a very, very toxic way. You get a sense for a lot of the people there. And they and they just like didn't know how to help him, even though they knew he was in trouble. And um, so that's just one of the things about that doc that I think is just so special is just the voice with which it it, it tells the story about Anthony Bourdain. Because it is uneasy and it's and it's and it's com- it's actually genuinely complicated. It's a genuinely complicated story about who this man is. Because on one hand, you want to love him. He's this freaking smart Alec freaking cook who wrote a memoir that was very sarcastic, and then he got a show, and freaking he was super entertaining, and he was talking crap, and freaking he would go places, and 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 you know he had this amazing story about quitting, not being an addict or whatever, and then you just realize he was an addict. The whole time he just threw it on something else, threw it on something else, threw it on something else. And um, he was kind of just in an inevitable downward spiral that just got delayed here and there by something cool. And that's just so it's it's a it's kind of a hard thing to swallow. It's a sad thing to have to like come to terms with when you're watching the documentary, too. Cause you're like, Oh, Anthony, I love Anthony Bourdain. He, it's so sad that he killed himself, but he made like all this great stuff. And then you're watching the documentary and you're like, wow, this is actually like really sad. Um, he was a really sad dude. And not only was a really sad dude, sometimes he couldn't keep that from, sometimes he couldn't keep that, the, those emotions from the people he was with and around and people he worked with. And, uh, yeah, man, it's 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 rough. It's really rough to watch, honestly. Um, but there is this at the same time that there is that they do really, and it sucks because they actually have to end on that. So that is kind of the last thing you're really thinking about um, when a documentary ends. But 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 there is just this. There is also just a very very great retrospective of his career and his life in the movie as well that I really really appreciate and, and thought was awesome. So then uh, the last thing I watched 
<laughs> this week. Uh, moving to a very, very lighter note. Eh, not that light, but a little lighter. I watched Michael Bay's 13-hour Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. Um, I like this movie. I do. I honestly do. I'm not I'm not lying. I um I know that a lot of people are not about it, not about Michael Bay. But um no, I actually do have I, I, I do um enjoy some Michael Bay movies. And 13 Hours is actually maybe my favorite Michael Bay movie. I think mostly just because I like the I like I like the story of the freaking I like I, I like seeing an actual military movie by Michael Bay and a true story movie because it is very respectful to like the soldiers and stuff like that. And you can tell while there's tons of Michael Bayisms and the cinematography is very Michael Bay and the jokes are very Michael Bay and stuff like that. It is trying to be more serious and it's trying to say something a little bit more than most of his movies. And sure, it doesn't necessarily like transcend the art of Michael Bayisms that we that we know and think about when we um think about Michael Bay and and the movies that he makes. But kind of who cares, you know what I mean? It, it it doesn't have to like it doesn't have to freaking get past all of that. It just has to be um entertaining and, and watchable and stuff like that. And I think, and I think they really, I think he really kind of nails it for the most part. It's, it's not like the best, that's for sure. It's not like the best thing ever. Um, there's definitely moments that kind of like are cringe Michael Bay moments or whatever. Um, especially in the ending, like when John Krasinski screams in that dude's face, I was like, Oh, I kind of don't feel this. <laughs> um, but you know the battle sequences are great. I think that one of the things though is that I think there's there's not a lot of talking scenes to kind of balance out the action and shooting towards the end of the movie, because it really is like the last half of the movie is all shooting and action. The first half of the movie, I actually kind of like the setup part of the movie more than I like the second half of the movie, which is weird now. I think just as I've gotten older, as I become an old man, said the twenty three year old, um, action has kind of just become a little bit boring. You know what I mean? So, like, to me, action's just kind of getting a little boring in movies. And, you know, I, I'm excited. Like, I like Michael Bay action. It's pretty cool. It looks nice. I'm going to see Ambulance. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, uh, sometimes I think it's just because it's so overwhelmingly oppressive in uh, 13 hours that it kind of, like, gets away from me a little bit. But, oh well, I still kind of dig the movie. It's a nice fun watch every once in a while. So... But yeah, um, that was what I watched this week. Uh, I said I was going to make announcements, so announcements. Um, if you follow the YouTube channel, um, you may or may not have seen the um, update video that's going to be out there, which is just kind of me rambling. But um, I just want to let you guys know that I am still making videos. I know I've taken like two weeks. It has to just do with a script that I'm writing. I've <laughs> been trying to take a lot of time for it and... Um, because of that, I've uh, I've kind of not like I've kind of like put videos on hold a little bit just so I could write um, my script. But um, I've got two videos, two video essays coming up, and then there'll probably be little videos sprinkled in between. Um, on Easter, there will be a Last Temptation of Christ versus the Passion of the Christ video. Um, uh, it's going to be a video essay. If you follow me on Instagram, you've seen a little teaser for it. I'm very excited to do that. Um, what I, I, it, there's a thing about the last temptation of Christ that 
this is something that comes up uh, in my channel quite a bit. It was I, I have two videos about it on my old channel. This will be the first video about it on my new channel where I talk about it. Um, but, you know, great movie. So I'll be comparing, comparing and contrasting it with Passion of the Christ and talking about the controversies surrounding both of those films. Um, you guys also voted on Instagram that you guys would like to see a video essay about um, 9-11. And it's complicated. My, the, my findings on its effect on film, which I find very, very complicated. And there's kind of is no answer to it other than like, you know, everybody took it different ways. But I, I think it's a very, very interesting topic that I actually did a research paper on when I was in college, which is kind of the reason why I thought about doing the video in the first place. So that will be coming on. You'll see little videos here and there as well. But I just want to let you guys know the videos are coming, that the videos are still happening, A, and the videos are coming, and I'm working on two videos that are going to be hopefully really, really cool for you guys, uh, video essay format. They're going to take a little bit longer than usual, which kind of sucks, but um, but yeah, I hope that you guys dig it, and I will see you guys uh, next time, please follow the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you want to hear more of me talking about movies. Um, please do that. If you want to check out my YouTube channel, there is a link in the description. I believe you just have to copy and paste that into your browser, or you can follow me on Instagram at ed talks film. And I have a little link in there, um, to my YouTube channel. Thank you guys very much. Oh, you could also follow me on Twitch twitch.tv slash cat duardo c-a-t-d-u-a-r-d-o um yeah and i believe you can also follow me on letterboxd as cat duardo as well c-a-t-d-u-a-r-d-o um i try to make an ed talks film let me see what happens when i go into my letterbox you can't really change your username in letterbox unless you have pro what the heck is my letterbox app bro all right no, I think actually you can find me as Ed Talks Film on Letterbox. So that's E D T A L K S F I L M all together. So yeah. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast, guys. Really appreciate it. I love y'all. And I'll see you guys in the next one. Peace out.